You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very excited to have you here as we have this epic debate today. We are thrilled to have our guests with us and want to let you know if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many more juicy debates to come. We're very excited about that as we host on a a fully attempted, fully non-neutral platform to host politics, science, and religion debates. So want to let you know. We're very excited about this, folks. At the bottom right of your screen, this is one of the upcoming debates we're going to host. We are excited, folks. Basically, we're using a Kickstarter to help cover the speaker fees and want to let you know, I am determined we are going to make it to that funding threshold so that this event happens. I don't care if Tom Jump and Steven Steen and myself have to do a car wash in January. We're going to raise the funds. It's going to happen. So that Michael Shermer and Inspiring Philosophy debate should be a fantastic one. And so that Kickstarter link is in the description. If you'd like to watch it live, just three bucks. And like I said, that helps cover the speaker fees as we're excited for this big step. With that, we are going to jump into the debate quickly. We'll be starting from Stuart with an opening statement of roughly 10 minutes, followed by the same from Matt, and then open discussion, and then Q&A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire that question in the live chat. And if you tag me with at Modern Day Debate, that'll make it easier for me to grab all the questions to put them in the Q&A list. Last but not least, want to let you know, folks, in the description, at the very top, we have put the links of the speakers. So if you'd like to hear more from them, you can hear more from them. And so with that, we're going to kick it over to Stuart. I want to say first, though, thanks so much, both of you, Stuart and Matt, for being here. We are very excited to have you with us. So thanks so much for making it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Glad guys. we got the time worked out. Absolutely. So that's right. This is a reschedule. So thanks so much for your patience. As last Friday, we had to kind of kick it over to this week as we had a connection issue. So thanks so much. We are going to kick it over to Stuart now. Stuart, thanks so much. The floor is all yours. All right. Appreciate you both. Jumping right in. Cosmic wonder and perceived design. So last time I mentioned that evidence has to truly make sense of this complex world. So often I'll hear evidence strictly from kind of the rational perspective that has a lot to do with teleological, cosmological, all the illogical arguments. And for me as a pastor and an unlicensed psychotherapist, I noticed that in order to weigh evidence for anybody, typically they're going to take it from a pretty holistic approach. So we could say existentially fulfilling 
intellectually satisfying or credible. And so head, emotions, culture, because your culture makes sense of it. We could hit many. I'll probably stick with just those three in our discussion today. So firstly, kind of more so the logic, the rationale from a head perspective is cosmic wonder and perceived design. So cosmic wonder, one way to argue for the existence of God is to infer his existence from existence itself. So believing in God is to believe the universe has a certain character about it, which is different than saying within space and time, I'm trying to make an argument for say the Loch Ness Monster. So those who do not believe in God, I think that material objects exist pretty much on their own. And I have a tough time with that in terms of understanding the character per se of the universe, of our cosmos. Another piece that has more so to do with kind of this awe, this cosmic wonder is, is not so much connected, but it, it partly is because this type of argument always leads me to experience a sense of gratitude. Something that begins to exist has to have something that starts it or something can't come from nothing. There's a sense of gratitude I always have, not just for whatever started this thing, but we're going to get down to it where it's perhaps starts as simply a, to what many would say is kind of this divine principle. I would take it to a personal creator and then I would take it down to that personal creator punched a hole through space and time through the character of Jesus Christ coming to this earth to meet us in a loving relationship. So once we really get into it, this being has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. And I would add to that personal. So perceived design, there's constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of the strong and weak nuclear forces. They must all have almost exactly the values they do in order to have organic life here on this planet, but also the universe. And so you can think of a set of dials, all of which must be set where they are set in terms of probability and the chances that all the dials would be tuned to life permitting settings all at once is incomprehensible. So that MIT professor Alan Lightman in Harper's Magazine writes of science's crisis of faith. He says that the fine tuning argument is strong enough that scientists put forth the multiverse thesis, even though there is neither a shred of evidence for it, nor any way to test it. Either you have to take a great step of faith to believe there is a God or who designed the universe, or you must take a great step of faith to believe there is not. So distinguished agnostic physician, Lewis Thomas, I love his honesty here. I cannot make peace with the randomness doctrine. I can't abide the notion of purposelessness and blind chance in nature. And yet I do not know what to put in its place for the quieting of my mind. All right, moving on down to morality and justice. So making slightly making more sense of, say, what we see in culture today. I would take the Dostoevsky challenge. Well, um, I'm going to talk later on. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to talk about Raskolnikov and crime and punishment. That's my favorite kind of illustration of moral relativism. I don't know if Matt's a moral relativist, so he may not be. So I probably will not bring it up then. But if there is no God, there, there starts to be an issue. And I had Julian Bagini, who wrote uh, the book on intro to atheism. Oxford Press not too long ago. It was a couple of years ago, but I had a conversation with him recently. And he says that atheists are quite rightly keen to counter the accusation that life without God cannot be moral. He admits, though, 
for the religious, at least there is some bedrock belief that gives a reason, gives a reason to believe that morality is real and will prevail. In an atheist universe, morality can be rejected without clear, compelling reason to believe in its reality. And that's exactly what will sometimes happen. When I mentioned the, the schizophrenia of modern morals, simply put, I noticed that a lot of people have tremendous moral convictions, but they won't talk about objective morality, where these moral convictions come from. And so whether it's identity politics, you pick your poison. There's so many different groups of people or, or religions. I mean, you see it in religiosity too. John Haidt will talk about the self-righteousness, the, the type of animals we are. And if there's no moral absolute bedrock to it, and really in this country throughout un, until pretty much our current times where you know, you think of like a Charles Taylor, the great philosopher up in Canada right now, he talks about how there's no bedrock for morality and how everything's self-authorizing. And because of that, we're speaking over each other, or it's kind of this Nietzschean shouting down each other. We talked about the failure of the social sciences. I gave the example of Beatrice Webb and the British welfare system and how she tried over and over again to say, hey, morally speaking, we're going to really be able to make this country work. And we're going to be able to make changes. But then upon retirement, after years and years and years, she started to realize education, things like technology, could not solve the social ills, the big moral issues. It had to be some type of moral objectivity. It had to be kind of a heart change of some sort. The intractability, she wouldn't say of sin, but the intractability of some type of human brokenness. So is there a way forward? Well, we, we talk about telos and purpose. There has to be a purpose for man and woman in order to even begin to talk about what is truly right or wrong. Hume, Kant, Kierkegaard, and others sought to provide justification for objective moral claims. They all failed. Uh, and this is why our society today is riven, polarized, like I'd mentioned. So for me, I think it really ha has to come down to how are we going to solve the problems we have today? And, and I see a lot of young adults having a tough time with moral relativism. And I see the bankruptcy of it. So Christian Smith out of Notre Dame, 30% of young adults now are strong moral relativists. And so one woman was was uh, interviewed and she said, look, if, if a couple fanatical Muslims wanna fly a few planes into the, the Twin Towers, what is that to me? I mean, if that's true for them, it's true for them. It's, it's right for them. Again, this may not be Matt's position whatsoever, but it's a tremendous, there's a tremendous increase here in this area of moral relativism. And another one recently is, I mean, 75%, if you remove the moral bedrock, this, this moral absolute from our country, you have something like the statistic that recently came out, 75% of those who were asked, would you cheat on the SAT if you could get away with it? 75% said, yes, they would. And in many ways that's consistent because it's a type of selfish desire. and if moral absolutes don't exist, then what ultimately is the motivation? Uh, I, I don't see much of a, a motivation. I don't think this is hard, hard evidence that there's a personal God per se, but I think it, it makes sense at least for me in terms of a moral um, absolute that is connected to some type of obligation, which is connected to a personal creator of some sort. Or you could say, all right, Stuart, that's that's pushing it too far. I mean, I mean, what are you talking about? Christianity? No, not necessarily. I would get to Christianity, but you could just leave it at any type of 
spiritual transcendent being. Value. That's, that's where I typically go after talking about morality. I have a very tough time in a universe that is so based on loving relationships. You know, Camus talked about how the scariest, most meaningless part of life is simply the breakdown and ultimate demise of loving relationships. I'm fully there with Camus. And so does this place here on earth make more sense if life started with a personal creator where there was unconditional love amongst the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then also unconditional love for the beings he created? Or does it make sense more so from a, a randomness? Uh, Heidegger's, for example, his throneness. We just showed up here and it's the strong eat the weak. And so death would ultimately be kind of the main end of man and woman. Um, and then I, I go with, I think a, a big part is our long for justice, our longing for justice. And, you know, Thomas Nagel is one of my favorite thinkers right now. He's down the street at NYU. He said, if you cannot accept that objective moral absolutes and obligation are illusions, then you have to concede that there must be something beyond this physical material world that account for them, even if you <clears throat> are, sh are not sure what it is. And that thing can give us value, whatever it is, alongside of that type of moral obligation. And then finally, meaning and purpose and beauty. I brought up the Bible, Robert Alter, arguably the top probably in the world, it's disputable, uh, writer, commentator for the Old Testament, not a Christian, but he says, every single time I sit down to write on the Old Testament, I start to wonder, is this whole narrative in the Bible actually true? Because it's so beautiful. And there's tons of different details within the Bible that's simply the sheer beauty of it. For me, I am very similar to Robert Alter right there even though we disagree on our own religious positions, but very similar to start to wonder, wow, is this thing really true and how in the type of beauty that is ultimately within it? And meaning, we have to search for some type of meaning. I think, again, if you go culturally speaking, I was counseling a woman years ago who was finding meaning and purpose in her art. And I see this way more than just occasionally. She ended up sinking into great depression, great pain, ended up in a psych facility because she was finding all of her meaning and purpose in art. And we know a Buddhist understanding when it comes to meaning would say, well, detach, aim for something, but detach. So you don't end up falling into that type of pain. But the more secular understanding in our Western culture is no, chase after that thing, chase after the thing. Don't go crazy doing it, but you gotta find yourself. And you gotta fulfill those ultimate dreams of yours, or you really haven't found your meaning and purpose in life. I think there's great issues for both of those positions. And I think understanding a personal God who gave his one and only son for us to give us an ultimate reason to live that is beyond just this planet will ultimately show and give great evidence for the Christian position. Um, Kenyon College, there was an incredible speaker, David Foster Wallace. Uh, he hung himself not too long ago, was, was an atheist, but he basically said along these lines of meaning and purpose, he said, look, at Kenyon College, he said, if you worship and we all worship something finite, something on this plane of existence, 
something earthy, then ultimately it will eat you alive. But if you worship something transcendent, call it a God, call it whatever you want, that is eternal, that is how you can find meaning and purpose in life that will help you flourish and will not eat you alive. And I think right there, when I'm on college campuses or debating, 30 second warning, people will say, okay, fine. I, I get it. Like my dad started living for his job. So there was a painful divorce and things just broke down or I was living for my grades and now I've entered a depression or clinical anxiety. So there's a tremendous issue there. So there has to be something transcendent you're living for to find that meaning and purpose in order to live a tremendously flourishing life. Thanks so much. Appreciate that, Stuart. We will now kick it over to Matt. And that's a flexible opening statement. So if you need more than 10 minutes, not a problem. And the floor is all yours. Thanks so much, Matt. All right. Thanks. And thanks, Stuart. Uh, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to change anything. I'm not going to re rewrite an opening statement. <laughs> Appreciate that. We have a debate on is there strong evidence for the existence of God? So here's what I prep to discuss and then we'll discuss. So what counts as strong evidence? Mostly you put the word strong on this in order to distinguish it from something like testimony, because while testimony is considered evidence, it's not generally considered strong evidence. In fact, it's generally considered the weakest type of evidence uh, with hearsay, which is testimony about testimony uh, be being among the weakest. And it frustrates us because uh, strong isn't well-defined and it's potentially subjective. What I consider strong evidence isn't necessarily what Stewart's likely to consider it. But we've settled this issue to some extent about stronger good evidence in courtrooms and in scientific processes. And I can't see why a God, which has been excluded from both of those arenas, could possibly have strong evidence. It, science limits itself to naturalistic explanation, so it's not going to make a, a positive God, and courtrooms don't allow spectral evidence. And yet, if in fact there was a God, if in fact there was a real being that was interacting with reality, uh, it seems that the evidence for this should be found to be admissible both in a courtroom and within science. Uh, if, if the God that we're talking about is somebody that doesn't interact in reality in any detectable or measurable way, then that God's existence is indistinguishable to us from its non-existence. And so hearsay, opinion, feeling, any evidence that could apply to multiple different answers is problematic. If you present an argument for the existence of God and it is a generic deistic argument or a fuzzy feeling uh, about, hey, we really need some explanation for this and I can't think of one, but a God does it. The, the question then becomes, is that evidence? Is it strong evidence? And is it strong evidence that points specifically to the God that you believe in or does it point to a whole myriad a uh, group of gods or potential gods that could serve as explanations for things that you're uncomfortable about. In the case of the Bible, we don't have testimony. We don't have testimonials or depositions. No one is under oath. No one is being questioned. We have propaganda from anonymous, altered, ancient accounts. Eyewitness testimony is unreliable under the best circumstances. And if you recorded like a deposition of, of someone, um, what about altered recordings or deep fakes? And it, 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 we need a chain of custody. There's a difference between here's some evidence and here's some really good evidence that directly links to the proposition that I'm making as a proposed explanation. For me, nothing in the Bible could possibly count as strong evidence. It's a bunch of claims largely unsupported by evidence, supported by testimonial, anecdotal evidence. Uh, it is copies of copies of translations of oral traditions. There's no way to investigate it. It's like, it's like a recorded deposition that's garbled uh, from someone uh, 2,000 years ago and you're never going to be able to investigate it. So what sort of evidence would we expect? I mean, if we're going to get rid of testimonial and say that's not strong evidence, still evidence, not strong. 
It leaves arguments that attempt to explain these observations, but we need the strong evidence to tie them together. So what sort of evidence could a God provide? Well, I, I would argue that anything that would qualify as a God could settle this debate right now by showing up, presenting strong evidence, and, the debate, and that this has been true for the entire history of humanity, and that it has never happened. In fact, a version of the argument from Divine Hidden is suggested the fact that this hasn't happened strongly suggests that uh, God isn't real and isn't actually, actually uh, able to offer anything. Now, whether or not that means so that's what a God can do is a separate issue. As far as I can tell, I haven't suffered so much as a hangnail in punishment for 15 years of railing against every God and every religion that anybody wants to call in about to point out that, hey, there's no good reason to believe this. As far as I can tell, God hasn't done anything. There's a website called Why Won't God Heal Amputees, which I don't know if it's still around or still popular, but it's an interesting question. Now, I've had people tell me that God does, in fact, heal amputees, and they've seen it with their own eyes, and yet they do not or cannot produce evidence. As a magician, I've heard people describe tricks and watch them claim that the only explanation is that I'm using demonic powers when I know that to be false. Uh, I could say, hey, I raised someone from the dead the other day, but they were since abducted by aliens, and if you were with me, you would have seen it, and so that's the strong evidence. Why would I lie? So for ages, we've been had people claiming it's rational to believe in a God, and then some claim there's strong evidence, yet where's the presentation of the evidence? I don't know, because I, I wrote this earlier, I don't know what actual evidence you would want to present, but there's lots and lots of claims. I want someone to present the evidence. It needs to be distinctly applicable to the God you're arguing for. It needs to be empirical, examinable, hopefully reproducible, and the God proposition needs to be falsifiable as well. There needs to be some way to show that this isn't true. In fact, it's not. Once upon a time, strong evidence was presented for the sun uh, orbiting the earth. But we were wrong. The sun doesn't orbit the earth. But all of the evidence, and it was good, strong evidence, led us to that conclusion. We also had the same strong evidence that the moon orbits the earth. And we were right. So strong evidence isn't enough on its own, and we don't even have that. Right now in the United States, we have a prime example. There is no strong evidence of election fraud sufficient to have impacted the 2020 presidential election. Despite this fact, multiple recounts, elections being the most secure ever, every state has certified the results, the Supreme Court has rejected an attempt by Texas and 18 other states in this area, and now electors have cast their votes. There isn't strong evidence of fraud that would have impacted the, the election. There's not even weak evidence, yet people still believe it's a fraudulent election, just like they believe the earth is flat, just like they believe there's a God. The only difference between evidence for fraud and evidence for God is that the fraud proposition is actually testable and falsifiable, while the God proposition isn't, which for clarity makes it the weaker claim with the weaker evidence, not stronger. The fraud proposition is something natural that's known to be a potential explanation for election results. The God claim isn't known to be a potential explanation for anything. If we're trying to explain something, whether it's election fraud, the existence of the universe, uh, hope, morality, what created something, is there something rather than nothing that we have to explain, we begin by listing candidate explanations, things that we know from experience and evidence could be a potential explanation. God did it as a claim, has never been demonstrated to even qualify as a candidate explanation. We stopped allowing spectral evidences in courts. 
Try walking into a courtroom and suggesting that God told you to break the speed limit or that he told you to bomb an abortion clinic. The courts will not accept that. But if there were strong evidence for God, the courts would have to accept it. This issue is as over and done as the 2020 election. It's just that they're going to be an increasingly diminishing portion of the population that, like Trump and his supporters, simply refuse to concede. Thanks so much, Matt. We will kick it into open discussion mode. So thanks, everybody, for being here. If you happen to have any questions for the Q&A, oh, wait, I want, I want to let you know, if you were here last time and if you already sent in a super chat, I've saved those. So if you were here last time, we'll read that super chat. I've got those. And so don't super chat again to ask your question again. We've got it. And so with that, we will kick it into open discussion mode. The floor is all yours, guys. So... When you talked about evidence, and I, I liked your breakdown, Thanks. are you talking about evidence external and internal? How I mean, I'm not. I don't want to argue from the authority of scripture, obviously, but are you? I mean, when you think about evidence, I, I always dig into. So I, I almost lost my faith in college. I had to step back and say, what is the Bible saying in terms of what evidence is, and will that evidence lead me to Christ or not? And then I had to step outside of the text and say, what do I potentially think good evidence would be for God? Are you doing both of those? Or what's, what's your thought on that? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that you, you, you not lost your face, and then you had to step back and say, what does the Bible say? And I did something similar, except that my question is, why should I care what the Bible has to say? And no one has been able to give me a good reason to care about what the Bible says. Why, why should the Bible, you know, it, it, did you ask yourself the same question about the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita? Did you go through these others and say, ooh, I should care what these religious texts have to say? I don't care what the Bible has to say because I don't see evidence that it is authoritative, that I should consider it that way. And so instead, I went to standards of evidence, outs, you know, absent any bias or religion, because if the standards of evidence are good, whatever religion, religious views may be true, should be able to survive that, whether they come from the Bible, a preacher, the Quran, Scientology, which hopefully we'll all chuckle at. But <laughs> I don't see any reason to go to the Bible. What, what do you think drew you to the Bible and what answer did you get? So I, I, uh, maybe I communicated that poorly because I would never go with because the Bible tells me so. What I meant by that was, if we are, if we receive general revelation, like Kant talked about in the starry skies, and then a type of special revela revelation through our conscience, as well as scripture, and Romans 1 talks about it, what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate here is, then you have to take that type of evidence inside scripture and say, if I'm going to get to God, and God obviously made the first step towards us, I'm going to have to follow that type of logical progression, but not just that. I'm saying before you get there, you have to step outside and say, look, is this even fair that the Bible is actually calling me to do this? There, there's some level of biblical accountability. You see what I'm saying? No, I didn't. I, I really don't. I, I'd love to, but all I'm trying to get what reason. So like, here's this, there's 23 books probably on this shelf right here. And if I'm trying to figure out, let's say, how, what should I think about morality? Uh, there's, I don't see any reason to go to the Ashley Book of Knots. I don't reason to, to see a, a reason to go to the Quran. I don't see a reason to go to God the Failed Hypothesis by Victor Stinger. I don't see a reason to go to the Bible. And yet you seem to see a reason to go to the Bible. 
And I'm wondering what that reason is. So, okay, okay, good question. Because for me, I've read parts of the Gita, parts of the Quran, but have definitely not given a thorough, you know, cover to cover, like my brother, for example, has. So that's why I've had to stop throwing darts at something like the Quran, kill the infidel. I think that's tremendously unfair, just like it's unfair for someone to take Exodus 21, seven, for example, you know, a father can sell his daughter into slavery and say, okay, that's normative somehow for today. What I'm trying to communicate here is if I, you know, when I came to the Bible, I tried to be as objective as possible first standing outside of it by saying, Hey, look, I can't see a God. I can't access any of these types of truths with my five senses. This seems a little far-fetched. I'm but sorry. Then when I, far-fetched. What's that? I, I just want to know what seems far-fetched. I'll let you continue. I just want uh, to the point, the point you made earlier um, that Michael Newdow made to me recently. God, just show up, and that's evidence for you. Like, just show up right here. Like that, I could get in touch empirically, or at least with my five senses. Uh, no, my my point, my point in making that case is that I, I would hope that we would agree that it's possible for God to appear right now and unequivocally present evidence for existence to all of us that God is capable of doing that if he exists. Right. Right. Okay. That's the only point is that it it's not happening despite right. we both agree that if God exists, it could happen. Now that's independent of whether or not has God has reasons for that, that are, that are good enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you have to step inside of scripture and say, okay, if there is a level of special revelation and if he wants a loving relationship, not as say the Russians going to space and saying, "Up, oh, God's not up here. Let's go back down to earth and tell everybody. But instead it's more like, for example, Shakespeare and Hamlet, Shakespeare writing himself into the play in order to get to know us and build a loving relationship with us, as opposed to simply a raw display of power of, hey God, I'll believe in you and somehow everything will work out if you just show up right now. Because obviously that's a level of cosmic bellboy, let me manipulate you. You know, it's the typical illustration of my friend. Hey, if you show up and give me five bucks every time I see you, that will prove your love and friendship to me. That's what I mean between nobody's nobody's suggesting that what we're saying is I don't even, there doesn't even appear to be a friend I could go to, to ask for money. It's not like I'm continually going to them and asking them for money. I'm saying there's no evidence for the friend. Right. I mean, you know, it would be one, all I'm saying is that if God exists, it should be possible. God should be capable of clearly, obviously demonstrating with strong evidence, strong evidence that I would accept, strong evidence that everybody would accept any moment. And yet that does not happen or has not happened. That's, that's the, that's the only thing that, that I was saying on that point, Mm -hmm. Um, because what I'm still wondering is, and and I have, I have notes from, from both openings, but I'll, I'll set aside the one from last time and just focus on the stuff you said here today. Um, you talked about finding things that were intellectually satisfying, but that's not evidence. Um, you talked about there, uh, there must be a beginning. There can't be something for nothing, but that's not evidence. And I, I'm looking for anything at any point that you said during your opening that counts as evidence, including strong evidence, because you, you make a case for, well, there is fine tuning, but you didn't really talk about the evidence that would suggest fine tuning, just that we can't move the dials and, or, or, or that the dials are all tuned specifically to allow our biological organic life, but there's no demonstration, A, that the dials 
can be moved or that they are dials, that this, this could have been any way other than it is. And if, in fact, some other life form, if, if they were adjusted differently and some other intelligent life arose, that intelligent life would think that it was designed for them. The fact that you think that it's designed for organic life rather than it just supports organic life, you have to make a case and present argument for the intent of organic life, not just the coincidence of organic life. Um, and what you said was you, like someone else, can't abide chance. And, in, and you went on to talk about morals and, and principles and things like that, which I'm sure we'll get to a ton. But what struck me is when it, you said that it makes sense to you, but, and, and that it counters the things that you don't like. You don't like the fact you're not willing to abide chance. And so you come up with a counter to that. You're not willing to abide the notion that maybe there isn't hope of an afterlife. So what you've got is a God proposition that satisfies all the things that you're uncomfortable with, but that doesn't mean that there's any actual strong evidence for it. The fact that something makes sense to us um, like, I think my favorite thing that you, that you suggested was that, that there's so much about our lives that are wrapped up in love, that it makes sense that we were designed by a loving creator. And that's beautiful. And that's poetic. And it is utterly fallacious. It's like saying uh, that there's so much about my life that is or so much about my body is made up of water that it's clear that I was made up by a water based entity. But while that's beautiful and poetic, it's not evidence. It's not strong evidence. And in every one of these cases where you listed some some objection, uh, fine-tuning, morality, beauty, in every single one of them, no evidence was presented, no argument was presented, and all of them were just, God answers it for me. Well, I, I can appreciate the fact that God answers those things for you or that God serves as an answer for you, but the debate is about evidence, not about what's Stuart doesn't like and what God seems to solve for Stuart. So where, where's the evidence? Well, see, a lot of what you just said right there in terms of our subjective experience, I believe if it's not God or some type of theism with some type of loving relationship pointing to an afterlife, I have a tough time with my subjective experience connecting with objective reality. And so I hear it's so fascinating to me because everything that you stated it is it almost sounded like I have a type of wish fulfillment going on. Like I, I just want these things to somehow, God, you complete them. You know, meaning, purpose, justice in this world, hope, beauty, the Bible being true. It's so fascinating because I, I view it as the exact opposite. I could see why you why you go there, but I, I go there because these things press in on me. And okay, let's, let's pick one. Let's, let's pick many one. saying that. Pick one, like purpose, morality, whatever, so that we have something to focus on. Sure. Because I'd love to have that back and forth. Let's go um, value. Value and meaning. Because value, okay. yeah. So for me, if there's no mind that wants something, there is no value. We imbue things with value. What's the value of this pen? Well, it... It has a kind of standard value in the modern world of maybe 15 cents, if you're lucky, uh, on the market. But it's invaluable to me right now. As a matter of fact, it would, its value to me for taking notes during this debate is immense. And so the value of this pen is relative to how I perceive it. And you can have a different value for this pen. And if both of us cease to exist and, and all minds cease to exist, then this pen has no value. 
Wh where am I wrong? Um, no, I, I would I would agree with that. I okay. think absolutely. It's it's always it, it, so from a psychotherapy perspective. I can't give myself value though when it comes to identity, and I ultimately can't get a type of value that's sustainable from anybody outside of me. But in the counseling office, everyone always says, oh, just give yourself value and identity because your parents are definitely not going to give it to you. And your art teacher's not. But then I would say it makes way more sense if you put your faith in a God that's transcendent and personal and all loving, and we can get to the evidence side, but it makes way more sense if he is loving you and that's a type of unconditional love. But you're simply saying that value can come from and only does come from a human being that's an external source giving something else value. I, I'm, I'm saying it comes from mind, yeah, and, and specifically desire. Um, and my value of things and my value of people is going to be different from somebody else's value of things and people. Um, I, I the, the notion. So you, you talk about you know psychotherapists were, were suggesting you know give yourself value. Well, I don't have a problem. I give I give my life some value. My, I determine what the purpose and meaning of my life is to the best that I can. Um, I wouldn't want an externally, you know, imposed purpose. And you know, there are people in chat right now who who value my life at zero or perhaps negative. <laughs> it's it's fun to watch them flail around. Um, I value my life significantly more than that. I value uh, other people's lives. When when you're talking about the frustration of people stuck in a world where they they feel unloved or unvalued would you and i realize that you're you're still studying and so that this is not meant to to be a dig at all would you suggest they they find an invisible or a, an imaginary friend um that values and loves them if somebody was what if somebody okay. was was depressed that yeah. their life had no meaning and value um, and, and they were, and were toying with the idea of an imaginary friend that valued and loved them. Would you? Oh, absolutely. And I don't have to call it Jesus and, and God, the theistic God. Although I think that if you break all those down, it makes way more sense, but look at the untethered soul, how many millions of copies that that has sold. And you think of Lindsay Lohan and how she's pushed that book so much. Look at just the God shaped hole to begin with. Look at now how in the past five years, every single counselor is supposed to ask the question, are you spiritual? because it has so much to do with value. Oh, I, I would argue that no counselor should be asking that. It's one of the reasons why I support the Secular Therapist Project, um, because I want people's mental health issues treated with good science. And what, no, hang on, I'm, I'm gonna backtrack this a little bit because I had the same discussion with somebody else the other day. Spiritual is a word that annoys the crap out of me because it can mean almost anything to anybody. And so when somebody says, do you have a spiritual life? I have no idea what they're talking about, but I will recognize that if, if I, let's say, and let's say I was a psychologist and somebody came into my office and they wanted to talk about the value of the, the, the spiritual aspect of their life, I would be happy to listen to them and talk to them and find out what they mean by spiritual. Because quite often I, I would argue that you're you really like the phrase cosmic wonder it, it it probably popped up more times across the 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 two openings in this debate cosmic wonder is great like i i have friends who are astrophysicists and i go out i have a telescope i've looked up i i have as much wonder as anybody that i can imagine about the cosmos and i can see beauty and value and i can understand someone if they say 
when I look up at the, at the Milky Way, when I'm out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which was one of the most fortunate experiences of my life in the Navy, to be out in the middle of the Atlantic where it's pitch black, turn off the lights in the ship and see the Milky Way, few things hit you harder than that. And I can understand someone saying that is a spiritual experience to me because what they're doing is they're, they're being poetic, metaphoric. They're saying um, this hits me to my core, essentially. That's one thing. Spiritual in the sense of, you know, uh, supernatural, that's the one I need evidence for. I'm fine with poetry. I'm fine with a metaphorical human soul even. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have a spirit of inquiry. Yes, we do. But that's not it. Like, it's not like there's a my brain. And then here's the, there's a spirit of inquiry right here that leaves it sometime and comes back, you know, when I'm, when I'm not bored. Yeah. Okay. So I agree with that. But here's another thing pressing in on you, perhaps when you are on your uh, naval naval ship aircraft carrier. Um, I mean, a cosmic sense. It's funny though. I use that. I didn't even realize I used that term more than once. So I, I think gratitude, for example, when when I had Sweet Susan Blackmore on to discuss, and th- this is kind of the point I'm trying to make here with meaning and value, mm-hmm. and these things that press in upon us. Perhaps you see it as wish fulfillment. I see it more so as pressing in upon us. I think gratitude clearly points to, I want to thank somebody or something. And the act of thanksgiving, gratitude is more of a feeling. Thanksgiving is an action. When I feel grateful, I want to thank something. Now, maybe that's my imaginary friend, but why do I have that feeling of wanting to give thanks? Why does that giving thanks actually complete the feeling like C.S. Lewis talks about? In a way, it actually, you feel way better, way more joyful, way way more grateful when you actually do go about entering Thanksgiving for such a thing. And then secondly, again, I think it's the objective or subjective experience. Are they consistent or not? And the Christian worldview makes them consistent when it comes to meaning. I I feel terrible picking on poor Sue. I mean, I love her hair. She's she's a great woman. But when she talks about, for example, look, I, I was pressing her a little bit on suffering. And I said, what do you do like, in the face of tragedy and suffering? And, and she just sat there and was kind of like, yeah, it's it's no good. But then I just look at myself and I say, come on, girl, get up and get on with it. And, so, and I see a level of inconsistency there. And I also see something pressing in on her that perhaps she's not acknowledging in terms of entering in. Yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? No, I, 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 I wanted to make sure... You get time because I'll talk forever unless somebody stops me. And I I understand that. Um, So I feel a sense of gratitude when people do things uh, for me. Uh, I I don't see any reason to consider that evidence for or strong evidence for a God or anything else, because as just as even as a purely selfish being, I can use my own selfishness to to serve as a foundation for altruism. Uh, I don't need there to be some external force wanting me to feel appreciative of things. I can feel appreciative. It's, it's human psychology. It's, it's recognition that I need other people in my life. Somebody asked me today, why should other people's lives matter to an atheist? And, uh, I, I replied with, because you depend on other people. Other people's actions impact your life. What what Stuart does tomorrow 
may or may not have a direct impact on me at all. But what Stuart's doing now does, we're here together. And if we were living in the same town or the same house, our lives would be interlaced even more than they are now. When, uh, when I come on to modern day debates, there's someone here, James, I appreciate you. Thanks so much for, you know, uh, sitting here and giving Stuart and I a platform to talk about this stuff. <laughs> the, it's natural to, for me to say, oh, something good happened to me. There's someone I should thank for that. And when something good happens that isn't the result of a, a direct person that I can identify, I understand how human psychology could go, wow, I don't know what person to ask. I, should I thank the wind? Should I? Oh, and then we invent a transcendent mind to think, oh, I'm, I'm thankful for, you know, I'm alive or that there's oxygen or whatever else. I don't see that this is evidence for God. What it is, is it's evidence that human beings um, work cooperatively and the way our brains analyze the situation or one particular situation is going to spill over to other situations. So when it comes to the question of God, then, you know, 87% of the world is still theistic. Mm -hmm. I, I think the secular hypothesis started by Nietzsche and then followed up by John Lennon in 1966, when he said religion would go, this I'm certain of. But you look at the explosion of the Christian faith in China, and it's becoming more and more technological as well as scientific. Why in the world is that the case? Is that just some sociological, psychological phenomena? And it has nothing to do with, with potential evidence for God. I, I think a big part of this, it, it's, it's, it turns into one big sociological, psychological phenomena that's going on rather than a direct type of evidence, which I, I agree. It's not, I wouldn't say it's strong evidence here, but for me, strong evidence becomes a cumulative amounts of small evidence. That's how I, how I think. I mean, you guys talk about how it's, what do you guys call it? Extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. I actually did a video about that recently, pointing out the errors in that. But yes, generally speaking. Uh, and I think that kind of thinking is from Hume, right? But regardless, I mean, I think it's these things adding up. So when you talk about strong evidence, I, I think you have to take the small things. You know, some would say, okay, the evidence for the resurrection is a very big thing. But I don't know. I, I'm with I'm with say um Planiga and Swinburne on this. I, I think it's a slow accumulation of that ends up taking us there. But again, the reason why I brought up the internal piece, I'm not arguing from authority with the Bible, but I am saying if we are, let's say if we get to the point of potentially even there being a God. I think you have to look at the evidence for that God. What is What does that God even consider as evidence in order to enter into relationship with him? So let's go to Mark chapter eight, for example. In Mark eight, the Pharisees and religious leaders are saying, give us a sign, show up right now. Come on, you did a healing. You, you did a, a, you know, you've been teaching and your teaching has been phenomenal. Everyone's saying you're speaking with authority, whatever that means. And yet he says, I'm not going to give you a sign, but he gives signs to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes, to the lame. And so that's what I meant earlier, where it's, I could just be hitting my head against the wall here over and over again, looking for evidence. And I think that's fair to an extent, but at some point I have to look at what is the God of the Bible? What, what is he saying evidence is, and is that fair whatsoever? And that's the evidence that Jesus gives there in Mark chapter eight. Okay. I, so we're, we're back to, to where we started a few minutes ago, which is you're like, at some point, at some point, I got to figure out what the God of the Bible says about evidence. Why? 
because he's God. Wouldn't yeah, you? But you don't know that. Now, now, now you've now you've I, fallen I think, into the trap of a circular argument. You can't say uh, I need to yeah. find out what the God of the Bible says because he's God. Because the whole point is to try to come up with strong evidence for God. You don't get to just assume that there is a God and that the Bible is God's word in order to give a reason for why we should consider the Bible. You have to present actual evidence, not just assume it. You, you've turned to you make your whole case circular. Well, let me try and do a Dillahante dodge and get out of this one. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what the Dillahante dodge is. I'm totally kidding. I don't either. <laughs> Uh, I think it's I think it's been used in two different ways. One is by a handful of people who think that I uh, avoid um, presenting evidence against God, which isn't my purpose. And the other one is is something about me avoiding questions. But I keep asking questions. We're here, and the question is: Is there strong evidence for God? Yeah. You wanted to say I need to consider what the Bible says. I ask why, and you say because it's from God, and that makes this circular. So we got to fix that. Okay, I don't see how it's fully circular, but I do see, I mean, the way you're taking it, I do see how that's circular. But I see the, the issue I have here is when I almost left the faith, I had to, I mean, it gets to the point, I'm not saying you're not a humble guy. I can tell you are a humble guy. Sometimes, not always. <laughs> I'm awesome. But it's this whole point, you know, the reason why in the last 20 years, I guess the theistic approach, philosophically, not necessarily personally, the theistic approach to suffering has kind of won against the atheistic approach because of the whole planning up project, which simply states, if there is a God of the universe, then that God could have reasons that we don't know about for why we are going through suffering. And personally, that's really painful to have to accept, especially with all the suffering I see. I would never say to somebody who just lost a child. Hey, God could potentially have good reasons for you to lose that child. And yet from a sheerly philosophical standpoint, I understand how you can get there. And I think it's connected to this one. I mean, at what point are we ne are we never going to say with our finite minds and and I seriously don't don't mean to simply just be trying to get out from underneath this one. But with our finite minds, at, at what point are we going to say you set the standard? And if this manual to the car is truly the manual, at what point are we going to say, okay, that standard is all right with me. I'm not going to be like the Pharisees getting these signs, these healings, you showing up right in front of me. But hey, I, I'm okay with that. I don't know why I'm not. And, and maybe it's a lack of humility on my part because you're all for the outsiders and not the insiders. You're always for the outsiders. And supposedly the... the the prostitutes and the whoremongers get into heaven above all the religious leaders. I mean, it doesn't seem fair to me. I mean, I'm a religious leader. So so this this is what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to argue from a circular point of view, but it's still, it kind of gets back to the strong evidence piece of, okay, what does that mean? And at what point does that actually fall off? And I know you said, I don't know. I'm not sure how much evidence. So you see, you see the struggle? The struggle's real. All right, let me let me let me let me address this because I, I want to make sure we're understanding this. So I'm gonna do my best to kind of steal man what you're saying. On suffering, people suffer in life. I think we're all agreed that to varying degrees, some people suffer more than others, some people suffer uh, un unbearably, but suffering is a reality. And so the question then becomes, why do we suffer? And you think that the Theistic proposition, specifically Christianity, offers an explanation for why we suffer, which is satisfying to you, correct? 
Yes. I, I mean, not fully. I always have questions, but sure. Yeah. The thing is that, it, it, yes, if in fact I believed that there was a God who had good reasons for why I suffered, then that would get me to stop saying, oh, well, why do we suffer? Well, God has some reason. But I have actually, in that scenario, provided zero A evidence or strong evidence. But more importantly, I've done nothing to explain suffering. I haven't essentially solved a mystery. Why is there suffering with a bigger mystery? I don't know, but God knows, and that's good enough for me. So there's no explanatory power in that. There's no, um, God has good enough reasons for suffering. How did you rule out when you, when you sit down to consider why do we suffer? How did you rule out this is just the way things are, that we live in a world of variation, variations in temperature. So sometimes I'm going to be hotter than other times. Variations in atmosphere. If I, if I stayed underwater too long, I'm going to be suffering. Um, this is a, a world that is indifferent to me and treats me fairly in the sense that I could get bitten by a snake. I could get coronavirus. Uh, I could stay healthy. Maybe the question, why is there suffering, is the wrong question. It's like, why is the sky blue? Because that's the way it is, because of refractive light. How did you rule out that's the way it is? Or was this just a matter, like you said before, with other things of you didn't find that satisfying? And, and I ask because whether or not you find an answer satisfying has no bearing on whether it's true, on whether there's evidence for it, or whether there's strong evidence for it. But why, why are there so many atheists, though, that would disagree with that level of thinking? But, I mean, we'll go back to that in a second because I want to answer your question. Well, first of all, I'm not here to defend other atheists. Right, 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 right. right. No, I got you. <laughs> if you want, if you want to play that game, there's some really terrible <laughs> Christian crap I can saddle you with. <laughs> so, so I, I would say um, that's what led C.S. Lewis to the faith. C.S. Lewis said, "I will never believe in a God who allows suffering and evil." But then he said, well, hold, hold on, what makes this evil evil? And why is there some standard that I'm buying into of evil? And why am I so bothered by suffering? We, we kind of shift scope because I wasn't talking about evil because e evil tends to sure, sure. carry a baggage of intent. So I was just talking about suffering. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just, I added evil because I didn't want to put words well, in CS's. I, I, I don't want to be mean, but, but I, I suspect that subconsciously you added evil because suffering in your model needs an intent that's why god allows it that you, know, the, the, you have a, a hierarchical system where there's a god that thinks hey i know this suffering seems bad to you but i know better and so you put in this intent behind it i view suffering as just a fact i mean right. it's pain it's physical pain emotional pain i did that wrong i did physical pain emotional pain whatever but anyway continue yeah, it's how the intelligentsia views meaning. It's back to the meaning question too. I'm, I'm not. I'm not skirting, because intelligentsia de dealing with meaning in terms of let's stop asking it because these questions are too big, and unless you enter an eternal life or God in, it becomes tremendously depressing. But we let's let's go ahead and create our meaning. That's the second one. So either don't talk about meaning. I see in our culture today, or let's talk about it. But we aren't derived. There, there's, there's no derivative somehow when it comes from this meaning. It's, it's we simply create this meaning. And to your point on suffering, it's an issue for me of why well, I agree with you. Why does it bother us so much? Let's stop talking about it because it it shouldn't be a big like do animals talk about suffering on a regular basis? I mean, if there's if there's three gazelle grazing in the Sudan, 
and there's two sisters and one brother and one of the sisters gets picked off. The other two are going to look up, feel bad, probably not feel even feel bad and just go back down to grazing. I mean, the suffering is not a big issue to them. So, so why can't we do something, something similar? But the reason why I find suffering to be so, so powerful from a, a Christian perspective is, well, one, sociologists and psychologists are saying right now in the West, more so than any other time in the history of the world, do we have so few resources to deal with suffering and pain from a psychological perspective? I find that troubling. I find that interesting. Um, but I think, so, so I see an issue here. Something needs to fill it. I would say the Christian faith does because it's a suffering God who lived and died on a cross in the most excruciating way possible. I don't think we have answers. And I think the Bible is horribly consistent, rational, and realistic about that. You turn to like a Psalm 88 and it ends with Haman saying, death is my greatest ally and then lights out. And then you have Psalm 39, something very similar in terms of God is never talked to, talked about. It's just, I'm depressed. I'm having this dark night of the soul experience. Or you take Job, for example, and his friends show up. They're silent. They do good for a week, but then they open their mouths and, and they try and explain his suffering to him when clearly there's no explanation for it. And I think that is exactly the experience we have when it comes to suffering in the sense of we still ask questions. It definitely hurts, but we're not going to have ultimate answers. Perhaps at times we will. But many times when I'm suffering, there's, there's no ultimate answer. And that's why we get that example throughout the Bible. I think that's realistic. But that's my point. You, you, your, your frustration is that there's no ultimate answer. And I'm like, what if it's the case that there is no ultimate answer? I mean, you, you, I, setting aside the gazelles, because if there's, and I don't know why we gendered them, but a, a two brothers and a sister out grazing and one of them gets taken out, I can pretty much guarantee you the other two are not just going to sit there and keep grazing. I don't can't tell you what their concept of suffering is, uh, but we do know that animals mourn and uh, fear for their life and that they suffer. But when you say, I, I, I share your frustration that there there's no, doesn't seem to be a good explanation for suffering. I just don't share your when there's not a good explanation, I'll go grabbing for God solution. And, and when there's not a good explanation, I just acknowledge there's not a good explanation. Let's keep looking for one. And in some cases, we have to recognize that maybe us looking for an explanation of why is a failing of our of our brains because we seek intent whenever we can. If the le if the if we're out in the jungle and the the brush starts moving, we can either perceive of that as intent. There's a predator in the bush getting ready to bounce on me. Or it could just be the wind. But if there's a predator and you assume it's wind, you're going to probably die. And then you don't pass on those genes. And so we are the recipients of, of the genetic code of people who were extra suspicious about the thing in the bush. Because if you're always suspicious about the leaves rustling, then you run away. And it doesn't matter whether it's wind or predator, you're not going to be eaten by that predator. Now, if we look for what's the bigger meaning, that assumes that there is a bigger meaning to be found. And that's something that hasn't been demonstrated as far as I can tell. I don't see, I see a universe that all the evidence points to doesn't care about us. And I see a universe that uh, there's no evidence that it's governed by any sort of benevolent or caring or thoughtful individual, or that it's governed at all beyond the detectable, identifiable 
what we call laws of nature. And so while I share your frustration that there, there doesn't seem to be a good explanation for suffering sometimes, uh, I can't, I can't just stick a God in there because there isn't evidence for a God. I, I, it would be like saying, you want to point to the Bible. My Muslim friends want to point to the Quran. My Scientologists want to shut down all psychologists and claim that it's Xenu and body thetans from before. Um, I look at it and say, yes, there's suffering. I'm more focused on how do we work together to alleviate that suffering? What steps can we take to make this a better world than going, gosh, why is this happening? Because I don't see any reason to think it's a why question, like, there, like there's intent behind it. So what makes us think, what made you think that suffering has an intent behind it? Well, wait, just to get me right here. Okay. I don't think it's the Bible. It, it, we didn't pick the topic of Christianity rational. I, I know they can obviously overlap, but I, I would say the four gospels, separate books, manuscripts, manuscript evidence, but I would start with Jesus, reliability of gospels, did the resurrection occur? I I don't know why. I mean, I mean, I'm doing probably a little bit of an ambiguous job describing this one to you, but I am simply saying, what is God? The, the evidence that God gives us. Okay. Maybe here's maybe another example that'll help. Tom Nagel he's mining cosmos last word. He's got a bunch of these best published books and he's known as like, it's like Christians are using him as an apologist, even though he's an atheist. And one of these points he makes is, Hey, look, nobody can be truly objective when it comes to the God question. And I don't want to go so far as to say that he was actually referring to the Bible. He may have been. I, I can't remember. But I love that line because, again, evidence coming out of Scripture in terms of how does Jesus talk about what is evidence and what does it take to come to know me? A big part of it is what Tom Nagel is saying there is no one can come, objectively speaking, with no bias to the God question, because everything about the cross is offensive. Like, like every, I, I personally don't believe you can become a Christian if you don't find the cross offensive, because it's a savior dying for your sins. Like, I'm not a sinner. It's like one guy said to me, he said, you know, look, I find rational reasons to come to know Christ. I want to be a Christian. And we got through the good stuff. Then we got to sin. And he said, hold on here. I've never raped or killed anybody. I said, oh, neither have I. And and yet he said, okay, fine. I yelled at my wife once. And this guy was like 55. And so it's the concept of sin. And it's it's so not palatable, obviously, that I think that obviously what, what, what Tom Nagel is getting at, there's this bias here that we have to find a way to get through. And I realize that that's tremendously frustrating for me and you to talk about because that automatically is saying, wow, so there's something wrong with me or somehow... I am not removing the blinders or so on and so forth. But we at least have to acknowledge based off of, I mean, Mary, this time of year, Mary, when Gabriel visits, she doesn't fully accept it at first. Joseph definitely doesn't accept it at first. Then you have Romans three through five, all about not accepting it and how it's not palatable. Endless amounts of this. So there has to be bias, at least internally, whether we think that's fair or not is an entirely different question. All right, that that was that was on to your other point. This well, on suffering. I'm, I'm confused because yeah. I I asked earlier for a reason why I could should care what the Bible has to say because I don't and it has nothing to do with whether or not it's palatable. Like you just talked about 
the Jesus story mm-hmm. as if it were confirmed, true, real, um, yeah, right. none of which has been demonstrated. Mm-hmm. So once again, and, and I, I, I promise I'm not, I'm not trying to be an ass or anything, but every time we're trying to get to strong evidence, you're like, well, you've, you've gone back to the Bible again and what the Bible has to say about evidence. And we've never established why we should care what the Bible has to say, because I could pick up a Quran. There's, there's one right there. It's, it's, I imagine all my Muslim friends would throw a fit because it's translated into English and they'll say that I shouldn't trust anything it says, but I could look at what it has to say. I could also look at what somebody in chat has to say. There's several people in chat who think that I'm a raving idiot who doesn't understand anything. Um, and that the evidence is just obvious and they keep accusing me of knowing that a God exists. Um, I could use their standards of evidence, but then I'd be an idiot. (laughs) And I want standards of evidence that are more likely to give me an accurate model of reality. That's it. That's all I want is standard of evidence that give me an accurate model of reality. Where is the good, strong evidence for a God? Because I can appreciate, Stuart, I can appreciate you. I, I, you know, I, I've debated your dad twice and, and, and met him. I, I like him. I like you. We'd never met till today. This is not a personal thing. I genuinely want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. And when, the, you know, if somebody said, if the, if the debate had been, is there evidence for God? I wouldn't have taken it. So the whole point was, is there strong evidence for God? Because otherwise you could say, well, there's anecdotal testimonial evidence. I want to know why. What is, what is the strong evidence for God that, that is such that I should consider the Bible or consider Jesus? Because to me, it's not about whether or not the message is palatable. It's about whether or not there's strong evidence for it. Do you want to go suffering and then there? Because I liked your suffering. What, what, whatever, it works for you, yeah. I think we might have just enough time for a quick visit on both of those topics, and then we'll go into the Q&A. Okay, okay. Cool. So. I think suffering, it gets back to the subjective objective question. And it's a good one in terms of, okay, my subjective experience is painful. So is there an answer? And I think objectively speaking, if Jesus Christ did exist, die on the cross, enter a place where he was actually sweating droplets of blood, went under that type of excruciating sorts of pain, dealt with complete inner and outer isolation, that sort of pain. Don't forget he was completely faultless in every way for this. If he went through that kind of pain, then that act has to be some type of salve for us, some type of great resource for us in our suffering. And I know many people, I mean, Dostoevsky, I I did not know him, but he came to know Christ through the cross, randomly just entering a church, seeing a cross, getting on his knees, because he saw this incredible beauty of actually the God of the world dying for his very enemies. And so it wasn't through the head, it was mainly through the heart that he came to know Christ. And I think he came through that type of suffering and sacrifice that so many people I know end up coming to know Christ through the emotional experience. I wouldn't say that's strong evidence, but I think that is a type of evidence where the beauty of something like the cross speaks to us. Now, I think, does it make sense of suffering? Well, absolutely more sense. Because I think if there is no God, then why does why do we have to talk and think about suffering at all? Why do we have to talk and think about the meaning question at all? I'm, I'm, totally, I'm totally with you. But I think everything about us is hardwired 
to get out of this broken world. And I think sin makes sense of that in the sense of sin has affected us. I mean, cosmically, natural disasters, sociologically with relationships, psychologically with our own inner insecurities and depression, anxiety, whatever you want to talk about. See, I think all of that just makes sense of the complexity of this issue more so than atheism does. Now, your response to me, I'm not trying to give evidence there. I'm simply trying to answer the, the suffering piece. We could go to your second question after. But does, does, does that make sense from a suffering perspective? Because how does the atheistic perspective make sense of us needing some type of response or wanting to sure. get through this in a different sort of way? How does it answer it better? Well, science answers it in psychology, which I would hope that you would be studying some. That answers why we desire and want things. We have a sense of fairness because it benefits us. But there's a number of things to, to kind of correct really quickly before we get going. Um, you basically said, if Jesus went through all this, then that is sufficient explanation for why they're suffering, et cetera. However, that's a big if. Hasn't been demonstrated. No evidence presented. No weak or strong evidence presented. However, if Jesus suffered that ex that provides a, uh, an explanation for suffering. Uh, also, if the universe does not care about us at all, that also explains suffering because it's there's there's no protection mechanism. Everything is just fair. Of the two propositions, one of those doesn't violate Occam's razor, doesn't appeal to the supernatural, doesn't actually make a claim that would require evidence and not present it. Uh, we, we'll have to save sin for another time because I reject the concept of, of sin entirely. But also on Dostoevsky, um, first of all, when or how Dostoevsky found Christ or what he found convincing is utterly irrelevant and has no evidence. But Dostoevsky, I'll point out, was raised in the church, went to Sunday liturgies. It's not like he just reached adulthood, saw a cross, hit his knees, and, and was overwhelmed. He was raised in this. He was indoctrinated in this and rebelled against it and then found his way back. So it's kind of mildly inaccurate to suggest that Dostoevsky uh, had all these troubling thoughts and then just found Jesus as if that's proof of anything other than Dostoevsky is a human being who was suffering. He was trying to make sense of the world. And he, like you, which may be why you've reached out to him, finds that the world makes more sense for him if he has a God figure who loves him and cares about him, but the world is broken. It's a great little narrative that puts everything in a package and ties it with a little bow, and none of it is demonstrably true, supported by evidence, and may even be the case that the very question itself, why is there suffering, doesn't have, there's no good reason to ask that question in the first place. Or maybe the second place, because in the first place, everybody's going to ask it. And then the second place, they, they'd be like, oh, oh, I addressed that already, because the universe does not care about me. I think what we can do is we'll give you a chance to respond, Stuart, and then uh, same thing, quick response from Matt, and then we should probably go into the Q&A as we got a lot. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. Okay. I mean, I liked your response there, but I wasn't trying to give any evidence. I was simply answering, okay, what is the resource of Christianity for in responding to suffering? So I, I don't know why you went across the board there. I mean, see, the textbook testimony there of Dostoevsky, born into the faith. 75% of people who are born into the faith end up leaving it here in the West, at least. 40% go back to the faith, oftentimes because they find certain types of evidence, whatever that might be. And then when he's in this church, obviously he's the intellectual mastermind <laughs> of how many, I mean, of Russia, at least. You think of Tolstoy, others, but 
it's not surprising that he came to the faith by counting up the sacrifice, but ultimately being moved through his heart by the beauty of it. Now, is that strong intellectual evidence? Absolutely not. Is that is that even you know, evidence that you and I would consider? Not necessarily. That's simply getting at the beauty, though, of it, where, you know, say if Matt Delahante was to say, you know, this God is a, a moral monster from the Old Testament, which I think you've said before. Yep, I'll say it now. The God of the Old Testament is a moral monster if he exists. <laughs> he, he advocates slavery, genocide, puts men and women uh, unequal, et cetera. So, yeah. All right, well, that, that's going to be another discussion. because Sure, I, and I'm happy to have lots of other discussions. I just wanted, if you really wanted me to say the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster, <laughs> I will happily say that. Just like I'll say that, you know, uh, other fictional beings, like I, I'm not a fan of Voldemort, but... <laughs> Although Harry Potter is supposedly influenced by the Christian faith, even though I know what's her name is is under some some heat right now. But yeah. I so um so I think these big things, I, I know they're frustrating and look, they're annoying to me, but it's not because the Bible tells me so. Because I yeah. hate that saying just as much as you do. And I, I have had a long brush with fundamentalist Christianity. Trust me, I have a serious aversion to it. My whole point though is. Finding things like the cross, if you find God repulsive, how are you going to even take the step to even getting close to potentially accepting any type of evidence that any, whether it's nature, whether it's through the intellect, the heart, whether it's through the Bible, whatever it might be, that's Tom Nagel's point, where we are so biased and scary. And he says, I am so unnerved because there are so many people on the faculty here at NYU who are so smart and have thought through the Christian faith and are Christians. Now, again, that's not <laughs> so. So I, I think just the attractiveness. It's absolutely offensive. It can be oppressive in ways, but dealing with all of that has to be at least a small piece of the puzzle here. I'm not going to the extent of saying, look, Matt Delahante had a horrible relationship with his dad, so it's the defective father you know, theory that that's why he doesn't want a heavenly father to believe in. I, I'm not going there. Like, like that is so extreme, it's scary. Going back though to your, your I'm gonna make just this final point and good, ev strong evidence for God. It's many of the things I said. I guess we maybe I could have been smart based off of what you said, where I skimmed over too many. I, look, it, it's the ADD brain. Maybe I hit too many topics just off the top, but I am glad where we went in this discussion. I thought that was a little way. No, I, I love the discussion, but here we are at the end of it, and you're and you're ready to present. We are at the end of it, and you just suggested you're ready to present your strong evidence. No, no, like, no. You said more. You said, I thought I already gave it. You said oh. more. Okay. But did not dig down into like the teleological argument for an hour and a half. So my only, my last one, one of the biggest ones for me is what the early Christian church was known for. Why, what was the motive to love, live for, and sacrifice for every single person, not in your tribe, but on the face of the planet. And that was because God became man, died for us as an oppressed person and totally flipped the social order. That would be cool if anybody could present any strong evidence for it, but they don't. Well, that's the resurrection debate. Well, you, you, you haven't proved it. Okay, we can have a resurrection debate. I've done that before too. There's no evidence for the resurrection. There's no way to investigate it. You can, oh, look, it's an oh, empty tomb. Hold on. Because I, I, I see where you're going. I, I, we need to stop there because George is desperate to get to the questions. Yes, yes. I think this might... Do this again. 
we if we if we want to do because we sometimes we do a, an entire debate focused solely on the cumulative you could say i think it's called the minimal minimal facts argument for the resurrection that we can do another time as we've had matt on for that as well that would be fun but we do really want to jump into these questions want to say thanks so much everybody for your questions thanks to our guests they're linked in the description folks so if you'd like to hear more those links are waiting below for you and so with that we'll jump into these questions first want to say thanks so much from the first time so these questions some of these are from back when we tried to host this was last Friday, and so that's when the stream dropped, and so this is technically a reschedule. And so we do have some, namely, let's see, Woody, thanks for your super sticker, if you're out there, Woody. Mike Billars, thanks for your question, said, Matt, how many games of chess have you played during this debate? Very nice. Jay Mixon, thanks for your question, said, can you believe Matt has dealt with the same arguments and quote-unquote evidence for over 15 years? He's the real saint. Gotcha. And then Average Joe, thanks for your super sticker. And Mark Reed, thanks for your question. Said for Stuart, you cited emotions as, as evidence. Why should anyone base reliable, robust evidence on what their feelings are? How is that reliable? Because any worldview would have to make sense. This is a very complex world. We are very complex humans. Would make sense from a rational standpoint, emotional cultural, it would have to address us as human beings rather than let's just go have a simply philosophical debate about mumbo jumbo and somehow we'll get a God from that. Gotcha. And thanks, Carl Sagan, for your super sticker. Appreciate it. And then let's see. Uh, moving into today's. Thanks so much. Appreciate your questions, folks. Barry, Barry, thanks for your super sticker. Appreciate the support. Zach, thanks for your question. For Stuart, said, if you found out there was no God, would you wrap M, order, etc.? I don't know what that means. I think, is this like a slang that the young people are using? I think they're maybe saying, would you, would you stop being a Christian? If I found out there was no God? Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. I apologize, Stuart, because I think we're laughing at the same thing. If you found out there was no God, would you stop being a Christian? Well, duh. <laughs> Although, that is interesting. interesting you go there, though, because I, I have asked some atheists, if Christianity were true, would you be a Christian? And way more than just one have said yes to me. Uh, I, I would say no, because that's a diff that's a completely different question. The, the notion is there could be a God, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to worship or revere it. So I could be convinced that there is a God, but not be a follower of that God. However, it would be very difficult to be a follower of something that you know to be false. <laughs> and, and the whole problem here is that the God proposition is unfalsifiable. So you're probably never going to find out there is no God. That is a shifting of the burden of proof to say, oh, I'm going to keep believing until you prove me wrong. That's not the way it should work. Gotcha. And Honest Abe, thanks for your question, said, where is the, in all caps, strong evidence, Stuart? I, Stuart, I we'll have to ask them. Maybe we'll let, we'll see if they were pleased. That, they I asked that pretty were, early. I thought these were all my fans on here. They, they sound like Matty D fans. There, there, there are a couple of Matt fans here. I'm smacking them down when they're being dicks too. Them, JW, thanks for your questions. And hey, you said slavery was wrong because it doesn't benefit the societies in the long term. If slavery benefited the society for the long term, would it be correct? Is that for me? 
I was thinking that. I mean, it must I'll be. answer it. Uh, it's strange, but if the if you define um, correct as in the best interest of humanity, then if then if it turns out that slavery were in the best interest of humanity, then of course it would be correct. But that's not the case. That's essentially like saying, "Hey, if you were to find out that God's not real, would you keep believing?" It's we know. It's like saying if if it turned out that terminal uh, prostate cancer were in the best interest of humanity, would that would it then be good? Well, yeah, but that's not what terminal prostate cancer is, and it's not what slavery is. Gotcha. Forgive me, one, I do want to make a correction. I totally butchered this. So what they were saying, uh, Zach was asking, Stuart, if you found out that there was no God, would you, for example, murder people and do other things like that? Jordan Peterson says says that I've heard him say that before actually in his debate with Susan Blackmore he said he said if there if you truly thought there was no God you would be very tempted to murder somebody who you did not like no I would not go I would not go there he said that with me did he oh uh, so his whole thing I mean he's very fond of the notion um, that without a, a God belief even though his God belief is going to be very different from yours Stuart um, <laughs> but he says without a God belief there'd be no art and that the you know secular humanism uh he, he equated secular humanism with uh communism and and, and didn't understand skepticism it, it was a mess but that fear that without god anything is permissible um the truth is prove that anything isn't permissible we're the ones that give permission or not we are the ones that do. it's like if you ran out in the middle of the woods with someone uh, and, and found someone living out there that nobody else knew. You could murder them and nobody's going to know. And that the terrifying thing that we have is that we all realize that's true. Somebody could get away with that. And so what we need is some sort of cosmic observer that can find out and punish that person. And so we invent one. Gotcha. And thank you for your question, Charles in Solo, who says, I believe now which one of the 30,000 Christian denominations should I choose from, Stuart? Knowing that at least 29,000 are wrong, I'm worried. Not really. I'd go, I'd defer to John 17 here when Jesus, I mean, the famous last words of a leader are supposed to be the ones that he meant the most. And he said, I hope they are one as you and I are one father. And then I think if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, these are the things of a first importance Paul talks about. That Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead. So they're laying out all the majors of the faith, especially Paul there. And most denominations understand the majors, but there's all types of many denominations and they've broken off. And so if you've ever been to like Scotland, for example, and you see all the, uh, the cobblestone cemeteries like right there in the middle of the streets because a Catholic hated you know, a Protestant and so pressed him to death. I, I would say Jesus is unpleased about that. So no, I, I would get into a church that has certainly the majors covered. Um, I met a woman the other day who said, you guys teach Jesus a lot at our church. But, you know, us down the street, we don't talk about Jesus at all. So obviously missing some of the majors there. But enter the majors and then there's all different types of flavors that I think make a lot of sense because there's there's cultural flavors that, that fits in with different types of people. Thanks so much. And 
B16 Street Burner, thanks for your question, said, Matt, I'm an atheist, and I was wondering how you would respond to a claim that the book of Revelations coming true is evidence for the Christian God. Sure. Well, so first of all, it's not the book of Revelations. There's no S at the end. It's the revelation of John of Patmos, and it almost didn't make it into the Bible because people considered it the raving delusions uh, of a madman. I don't understand what you mean by as an atheist, you're looking around and seeing revelation coming true. One thing about prophecy claims is that in order for a prophecy to be viewed as an actual prophecy where somebody made a claim knowing that it would come true and that it came true is, uh, first of all, the claim needs to be specific, answerable by a single set of uh, circumstances, not prone to interpretation, and not something that's readily likely to happen. If I uh, if somebody says, oh, Jerusalem will rise again, and, and everyone on the planet continues to work towards Jerusalem rising again, well, it's, it's not a prophecy. Just like when I order a steak medium rare and the waiter shows up with a medium rare steak, he's not fulfilling prophecy. That's fulfilling an order. And so you would need to show that there's a prediction that is answerable to circumstances and that those circumstances came true. However, even if that were to be the case, and so far I'm, uh, um, I'm not aware of any such thing that, that fits that category. What you have then is, I don't know how that person knew that. You don't get to just assume that they knew it because a God told them. Maybe they have a time machine. Maybe, I mean, but until we have these sorts of fanciful predictions coming true, I mean, I, I do predictions in mind reading on stage as part of my magic show on a regular basis. I do things that look impossible on a regular basis. Um, I'm Maybe that's biased me to where I just am not impressed by someone saying, someday the United States will have a woman president. Well, actually, what we probably had is someday there will be a leader in a great nation who is not man. And, and then, you know, if uh, Kamala Harris ends up being president, but, oh, it's fulfilled prophecy. No, it's not. That's not fulfilled prophecy. That's not the way prophecy should work. It's, it's gotcha. like, oh, let me flip open to the horoscope for the week and see if I can make it fit my life. That's not prophetic. Thanks so much. And Carl Sagan, thanks for your another super sticker. Appreciate it. Said, uh, Zach said, Thank you for these debates. I absolutely love watching these discussions. Thank you, Zach. And thanks to the speakers. All credit to them. And so Tesha Thomas, thanks for your question, said, you can debate all the apologists on the planet as much as you like. You're not going anywhere unless you go through this video. Quote, one, two, three, four, five, proof of God. Unquote. Okay. A little advertisement for their video. Zach, thanks for your uh, super chat. Said, Stuart... How do you know the Bible you read today is what was originally written? Dr. Bart Ehrman describes ways in which scribes have altered the text. Mm. Um, Qumran scrolls, you could go there. I think then you'd have to go to, um, obviously, checking out the, how they were circulated in terms of how they were chosen as well. No, it was not 325. It was not the Council of Nicaea. That was a debate over the, the Trinity. And um, and so, yeah, I, I would definitely start there. Thanks so much. And Apocalypse here says, can Stuart explain what he means by, quote, step inside the Bible, unquote? It's a lovely poetic phrase, but I'm not even sure what it means. Well, so if we're just trying to talk about deism or some type of, of cosmic principle, then we could just have all these all these different types of debates and and talk about expectations and what evidence is. 
But if we're going to talk about the Christian God, it's not because the Bible tells me so. And we just have to accept that and say, oh, there's the, they told me how to experience the evidence and believe. And so I'm just going to blindly accept it. No, instead, we have to, like Tom Nagel talked about, who's an atheist. And I, I think Matt was Matt was getting to as well in terms of understanding. I, I was very, uh, let's just say, not very clear and early on what I was trying to say. But looking at what is the process in terms of looking at the evidence and reaching the point of actually trusting God, trusting Jesus Christ, and how is that? How are you supposed to do that? Then you could say, okay, is that fair or is that just as ridiculous in terms of what does Jesus say? Evidence that leading to faith really looks like. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. Apocalypse here. Oh, we got that one. Converse contender. Glad to see you or hear from you. Converse says, Matt said, God isn't a contender for an explanation because it's spectral. Is he saying you have to show me supernatural in natural terms? No. And and I didn't say that God isn't a candidate explanation because it's spectral. Um, When we list candidate explanations, we say this event occurred. What what known explanations for that event do we have? And we list those. And then we list what potential explanations that, that we aren't necessarily known yet, but could there be? What I'm saying is that the God hypothesis, the God claim, has never been demonstrated to actually be a candidate explanation for anything. Saying, why, wh- how did the universe come to be? And you say, ah, oh, well, it's God. Well, how did you rule out any number of other fanciful things that we can't prove, universe farting pixies or whatever else. So we don't consider the universal farting pixie, universe farting pixies as a candidate explanation. And we don't consider God as a candidate explanation. Just like if there is a, um, a cup of iced tea sitting on my desk and it showed up without my knowledge, um, I don't get to include ghosts as a candidate explanation. Uh, of the candidate explanation, someone else in the house or someone else around me has probably brought me an iced tea. Now, that's extra weird, and it didn't happen, by the way, because I'm here alone. <laughs> I brought it myself. But I don't get to just say, well, it could be ghosts. Well, you're only saying it could be ghosts in the sense that you haven't yet ruled out ghosts. And for an unfalsifiable proposition, an untestable proposition, you'll never rule it out. So we go with the candidate explanations that have been demonstrated. And so if a fire starts, we look at, we, you know, an expert in arson gets to look at all of the evidence and try to determine how this fire started. And at no point will an expert in arson say, I think God started this fire. And if there were strong evidence for God, if there were strong evidence for, if there were strong evidence for God, the arson expert would have to consider that as an explanation. And yet we don't, which is an admission. There is no strong evidence for God. Gotcha. And Creptus. Crepitus S, thanks for your question, said, Stuart, what is the statute of limitations on mutilation of children in the name of your cult? Can I still sue several decades after my circumcision was forcibly removed or after uh, my circumcision happened without my consent? Yeah, circumcision is a big one right now, I'm noticing. I would is is the question also as broad as just uh, I mean child sacrifice in general, or is it literally just circumcision? I think they're just referring to that. Yes, just circumcision. circumcision. Yep. Yeah, r- routine infant circumcision is a, is an abomination. There's there's no medical reason to do it. There's no reason to violate someone's uh, consent and autonomy. Um, 
and it, and that's strange, but it's a holdover from Jewish tradition. It doesn't. Well, so it, it harms uh, obviously the ability to have certain amounts of pleasure. Yes. Was it, it, it? What is it? A myth that it helps in terms of cleanliness and. Well, there there is an argument. True, it, it has to by removing the amount of skin, it has to help with cleanliness. Uh, just like right, if I right. cut off my right hand, I have one fewer hand that can get dirty. Um, <laughs> the problem here is that I'm pretty sure it's never been particularly difficult to get someone to clean their penis or in the shower. I'll just leave it at that. Gotcha. Thank you. It sounds like I've got that one settled. All right. Uh, let's see. This one comes in from Charles in Solo. Thanks for your question. Stuart, what method do you use to determine that your idea of a God is real? How does your God interact in some measurable way? Feelings don't count. <laughs> How does God interact minus feelings? I would say one of them is, is thinking out the narrative of my life. I mean, I guess this is close to feelings. You know, the Christian understanding of meditation is furiously think. I'm not talking about Christian mysticism per se, but a lot of meditation in the Bible, the Greek is furiously think. So who you are, who you were, where you're headed. If I furiously think through that, rather than I'm just simply, a, you know, a kala, a, 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 what do we call it? A, a moist bag of chemicals just accidentally popping up here, Bertrand Russell style on, on this uh, rock floating through outer space. I don't want to think about that too much. And maybe I shouldn't think about that too much if I don't believe in God. So thinking through the narrative, yes, absolutely. That includes, again, who is Jesus? Is his character reliable? Is it attractive? Or is he some kind of schizophrenic or egomaniac? What were his claims? Did he claim to be God? Are the gospels reliable? Did the resurrection actually occur? Is there evidence for it? That's where I'm ultimately headed towards in understanding and believing in the, the Christian God. See, and those are all questions that can be answered by presenting evidence and can be solved by presenting strong evidence. So maybe we should have debates and discussions about pick one of those topics and see if there's strong evidence because everything you just said is, as far as I can tell, not supported by strong evidence. And so I'd like to see it. So one of the things I like about you is I notice, unlike most atheists, you really dig into scripture and you go pretty deep. So, I mean, some type of, uh, of debate or discussion on Jesus' character, divine hiddenness is obviously a lot in the New Testament and you know, parables, all of that. Yep. I like you interact with and because that needs to be taken seriously. I just did a video like a month ago or, or so about... Um, Jesus' use of metaphor and, and why I have objections to it. it it's, a, it's a fairly short kind of interesting thing. But yeah, I, I, so I, I, I know earlier today I pointed out, why should I care what the Bible has to say? You know, uh, and, and I want to I get more. So the first, first I apologize, this will be a slight diversion. The first debate I did with your dad, I'd been sick for a week. And so I sat there on a stool and your dad is this wonderful animated, ah, da, 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 and he's out leaning over and everything else. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is just going to be terrible because I can't move. <laughs> I want to be slightly more animated. And earlier, I, I know I said, oh, you've got to give me a reason to care about the Bible. And yet I've spent most of my life studying it in great detail. So it's not just like a, hey, I'm ignoring your holy book until you give me a reason to. No, 
I'm, I've spent a lot of time studying it for very good reason, because I used to believe it and because you believe it and because people around me believe it. Um, the question that I asked earlier only serves to be, yes, but why should I care about it as instructive or authoritative or proof of a God? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. But, yeah, you got it. Thanks for that. And thank you as well for your question from Rodent Last Name, who says, Matt, does it seem that most God arguments boil down to, quote, I have a girlfriend. She's in Canada. Yeah. That inside joke. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's it's one thing that kids, oh, 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 I do have a girlfriend. She goes to another school. You don't know her, that type of thing when you when you don't really have. I don't think it all boils down to that. Um, I, I think that when we say I have a girlfriend, she goes to another school or she lives in Canada, we know we're lying. I don't think Stuart is lying. I don't think Stuart knows he's lying I because he's not lying. He's presenting what he sincerely believes. I think he's sincerely wrong and he thinks I'm sincerely wrong, I suspect, but it's not just a, I've got a girlfriend in Canada. Gotcha. Thanks so much. And BOI, thanks for your question. This one is, they say the problem with Seward's argument is that he argues for a Christian God who is external studies in metaphysics and mathematics prove uh, God is internal. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm confused. I have a feeling that both Stuart and Matt, both of you guys, would disagree with this person. I guess. I uh, let's see. Happy. I mean, if you guys want to respond, I'll give you a chance to respond. Otherwise, I, uh, I frankly, I'm not super familiar with what they mean. Do they mean like internal in the sense of like subjective that God exists for each person, or? Yeah, it sounds like a contradiction. I don't know. I I have no idea other than like it, it's it's this question where it's like. Two different disciplines have proven that God is internal. And, and my view is I'm not aware of any reliable discipline that has proven anything about a God. Gotcha. Thank you. And uh, let's see. So we'll go to the next one. Happy dude. Thanks for your uh, super chat. Said, Don't forget to hit like and subscribe. Thanks for your support. Yes, we do. A lot of other juicy controversial debates if you're like us if you're a little sick in the head hit that subscribe button as we have many more to come and i want to quick mention it one more time as i had mentioned at the start the bottom right of your screen you will see we are setting up we're in contact with michael Shermer and inspiring philosophy about a potential debate next month to watch it live for only three bucks you can hit that kickstarter which i'll put it in the chat a kickstarter link that i'm putting in the chat right now and pinning to the top as we are believe me we're going to make it to that threshold to cover those speaker fees and host that debate so we're really excited about that one and again that's linked in the description as well so next up thanks for your question this one comes in from theranthalus 42 who says not trying to sound snide but the arguments that i'm hearing from stewart are god of the gaps and feelings Stuart, do you disagree? No, yeah, I, I, I see why they would say that, but it's just a, a difference in perspective because I, I would, I'm going kind of the angle of the, the Jürgen Habermas's and uh, a bunch of other atheists who talk about there's an awareness of something missing and that there are these, these big issues that are emotionally laden that are pressing in on us versus a type of, wish fulfillment oh i just okay no that person's totally wrong never mind but where matt was going in terms of th these things are missing and we just kind of wish that they were there but in no way does that mean that they're true gotcha thank holy, you holy crap I, can I, I need to say that <laughs> did i get that wrong 
No, you got it exactly right. You, you, you basically just said, Matt is looking at these things saying all of these concerns that we have that we're going to a God to provide an answer for, maybe there is no explanation for it. That's, I mean, I, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but I wanted to say that because I can't recall the last time I sat down on modern day debates or anywhere else with an interlocutor who even did a remotely good job of steel manning my position. As a matter of fact, one of the most common questions that comes up in all of these is to, to ask each of us to steel man the other person's position. And I have, I have a, I've been wanting to put together a list of clips because every time I've been asked that I've done my best to steel man them. And you're the first person that I can recall who actually kind of steel man my position. Well, which is, I, I see the same things weighing on me. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why, why does life seem so oppressive or suffering for some? And my answer is, I, that's, that's the way it is. I'd rather focus on dealing with it and seeing how we could make it better uh, rather than reaching out to a God, which doesn't add any explanation. Because if you say they're suffering because God has a really good reason why they're suffering, A, there's no guarantee you'll ever find out what that reason is. There's no guarantee that you would understand it, even if God were to explain it to you. And so the position that you're actually in is you went from, I'm really anxious because I don't know why they're suffering to I'm no longer anxious because somebody else knows why they're suffering and I'll just trust them. That's the case. Uh, oh, and that could be a great crutch. By the way, yeah, I, I'm crutch. <laughs> I, I am totally honored by such a, a medallion you just gave me. But Matt, just quickly. Hmm? If I would have stuck to teleological, you know, fine-tuning column, as well as moral obligation, do you find those more convincing than these intangibles, like meaning, purpose, beauty, sacrifice, suffering, et cetera? Do, do either resonate more with you? Yeah, if there were, if there were like empirical evidence um, related to the facts of the universe, that's going to be more impactful than... I need an explanation for beauty and I'm just going to go, but, but I think we have explanations for beauty. I, I think we have, uh, we don't know everything about the brain, but we have a good understanding of, of our psychology. And when somebody looks at something and says, oh, that's beautiful. Well, why do you think it's beauty? Ah, it's because God has imbued you with a sense of beauty detection, except that's not the case because beauty is subjective. There are things that we, that we generally all agree on as human beings. Um, I, I don't, there are people who, who aren't going to find person X beautiful or whatever, but a rose, it's become poetic because pretty much anybody in the history of the world has looked at a rose and gone, that's beautiful. Is it the most beautiful thing? No. Maybe some people are allergic, don't like the smell. Maybe they don't like the color or the shape. I don't know. But I don't see a need for a, an explanation beyond this is the way things are. And if there is an explanation beyond this is the way they are, that's something would need to be demonstrated and not just assumed. Give you a quick, really quick response, Stuart, that we have to go to the next one. Now, I would agree. To a level, they're definitely subjective. On another level, I mean, there, there's some type of moral anger and outrage over something like, you know, Notre Dame burning to the ground. And I, I think there is a level of objectivity of looking at something like a sunset. But, but the subjectivity and, and then the moral piece of, say, the Notre Dame, I, I think is interesting. Could be I, can I make one five-second thing? Sure. Somebody in chat said, I like this Dillahunty much more than the Atheist Experience Dillahunty. Those people are the same. There's no play acting. What you're seeing is a difference in interlocutor and someone who's willing to actually have a conversation and not just yell over and preach.
That reminds me, I have to say this because I was so encouraged to read it. Uh, Nifak Adorar, thank you. And let me know if I mispronounced it. Sorry, friend, if I did. But they said, thanks to you and the debaters. I think this is one of the best civilized debates you've ever had. Learning from each other. Thanks, debaters. No fights needed. Find your own. So, so glad. Uh, you guys do have, I was thinking of it as I was like listening to you guys. It's like you guys do have a pleasant... Uh, like a pleasant chemistry of interacting with each other. And so, which is odd because we'd never met. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give it to Stuart because Stuart is clearly a very nice person. You too, right? Gosh. Something. It's a good one. I and only want the atheist experience, Matt. So I, I thought something, you know, drastically different. Yeah. That is a good yeah. Jack and Jack Levy, thanks for your question. Said Stuart, plenty of animals suffer. Elephants come to mind as a non ape example, uh, and they grieve. Is God a good explanation for their suffering? If so, why? No, it is. Oh, I thought they were going a different direction. No, dolphins, there are other animal groups that definitely grieve, and many groups will actually head home to where they were actually born and die there. So, no, there's all, all different types of beautiful forms of suffering in the animal kingdom. I just still see a, a level of, of difference. You know, another moral piece of that is obviously we're not going to hold animals morally culpable if a lion eats a lamb. And so, so there's just differences in the, in the animal kingdom, but I don't want to go all, all evolutionary psychology on us. Um, but what is, is that kind of where the question was going or am I, Matt, am I missing that? Where was that? Where was that? I, I'm not sure where the question was going. Can, can you read it again one more time? Sure. They said plenty of animals suffer. Elephants come to mind as a non-ape example that grieve. Um, so it's kind of a cross between suffering and grieving uh, mentioned. And then they said, is God a good explanation for their suffering? Oh, okay. So, so I would say, well, I would say no, because I don't think God's a good explanation for anything. But for someone who views suffering generally and says, why is there suffering? And the answer is because there's a God who has a good reason to permit suffering, then yes, it applies to non-human animals as well. You got it. Thanks so much. And this one comes in from Dave Dallafior. says, Stuart, we need Jesus to be saved from whom? Ourselves. Gotcha. Next, John Braun says, John Brand says, Stuart, how do you reconcile that God's unconditional love was only for his chosen or for the people, uh, God's chosen people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, his quote-unquote love is only for those who believe then. No, it wasn't, it wasn't just for the Israelites. I mean, they were a light into the Gentiles. The Israelites were judged just as much as other civilizations and groups. And then John 3.16, we all know it, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so it's it's a it's a rather inclusive type of salvation, rather I mean, as opposed to getting into too much Calvinism. We we should probably we should probably stick a pen in that because you added a word to John three sixteen. Now, first of all, I don't care that much <laughs> to be clear, but you, you added a, you added a word. You you added whole world world, not just world because it was so for John's for God to love the world. Yeah. You added whole. But then there's other messages from Jesus that says, you know, I've not, you know, who, who have come to, I've not come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so I find it interesting that you added a whole world because it, I don't think it is literally in there, but I think it is 
metaphorically in there. And I don't, you know, it's like, I'm not going to make an argument about who Jesus came for or not. Cause I don't think he was here to come for anybody, but it was funny to, to have that because I was like, I, in my head after years and years of Sunday school, I'm like, for God so loved the world that he gave, Oh wait, he just said whole world. And then <laughs> I put me down 20 other verses going, is that actually biblical? I've been, I've been singing that song. Uh, he's got the whole world in his hands to my, my daughter. Maybe that's how the, the slippage happened. That's, that's good though. <laughs> gotcha next up thanks for your question this one comes in from matt c who says Stuart, even if you had strong evidence for a god why worship a god that condones slavery well he doesn't if he did it was way less than the other civilizations but you know you go to so one of the trickiest passages would be like an exodus 21 7 for example where a man could a father could sell his daughter into slavery and you got to look at context. Context is king. We always learned in Hebrew class and seminary. And if you look at the context, the father, it's a type of Medicare that's going on. It's a type of social security that was meant for a tremendously, I mean, plagues were going on as well as a tremendously, um, the poverty was just, it, it was rampant. And so it's not selling, for example, his daughter into sexual slavery. No, it was a type of servitude where that daughter would go for a time and actually make money so she could eat and not starve to death. So you have to parse out all of these. Look at context, like Numbers 31, uh, Arn Ra pushed me really hard on, and we debated three times in the last couple months. And you gotta look at Numbers 25 before it. Otherwise it does sound like the Levites can just rape whatever female children they want to. Next up, thanks for your question. Hang on. Everything that he just said about slavery is absolutely false with regard to the Bible. Uh, yes, 21.7 is a particularly troubling uh, verse, but 21.7 also includes the notion that, uh, and by the way, the, the beginning of Exodus 21 talks about Hebrew servants, Hebrew slaves, not Gentile slaves. There were different sets of rules for this. And verse seven says that if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she doesn't go free as the male servants do. So the rules for Hebrew servants were that if you have a male Hebrew servant, he serves you for six years and you have to let him go unless you trick him into saying that he loves you and wants you to be, wants to be your slave forever, in which case you pierce his ear and that marks him as your property forever. But verse seven says that the female slaves, so female Hebrew slaves aren't let go after six years as the men servants do. That's the problem that's that, that's the part of that verse that's particularly problematic. But if you go down to further in both Exodus 21, you're allowed to beat your slaves as long as they don't die within a day or so. You, slaves are your property. They are your money. You can pass them on to your children as heritage. Let's not pretend that this was a freaking social service. Okay, this was owning people as property that you can pass on to your children. And if you beat them as long as they don't die within a couple of days, no punishment shall come to you because those people are your property. Leviticus 25:44, the children of the strangers that sojourn with you, of them you shall buy, of the families that are with you, which they begat in your land, and they shall be your possession, and you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them. Let's not pretend that the biblical thing about slavery was anything like a social service for people who were poor and starving. That's disgusting. <laughs> we're reading different books, Matt. We're reading different books. I, I just, here's, here's, what, what book are you reading? Because I just read the verses word for word. Here's a short robot. No, no, I know. I, that's why I had to say, gosh, Aaron. Got to do this pretty quick. We've got a lot of other. I said, you might be right. Let me go check on context. Sure enough, he was totally wrong. And so for me, I, I, I think you're right. I have a, so you did name one that I have a, I have a tough time with. 
And that has to, the, the whole beating piece. But I think our modern sensibilities so often get in the way when it comes to the Old Testament. And oh so for example, so for example, I mean, I, I feel so sad for someone who says that our modern sensibilities are getting in the way of whether or not it's right to own people as property. Okay, so every other civilization, whenever you won the spoils of war, you would immediately rape all of the women, right? No. For, for the Israelites. Meanwhile, the Bible advocates for that, which is go kill every man, every woman who's known a man and every man, but keep all the young virgins for yourself. Where your bias is coming from. No, well, I, I'm biased towards morality and human oh. beings, and I'm biased against d making people property, making women inferior. I'm biased against all of these things. I totally agree. And then we got to move to the next question. Uh, uh, moderator's trying to talk. Okay. Go ahead, James. We'll have to do it in another debate. <laughs> next up, thanks for your question. This one is from Auntie. Kythera, thanks for your question, says, why does a unique religious teaching provide evidence for the truth of their central theology? All religions have a unique teaching. Who's that for? I think that's for you. Because they're saying, like, if it's just because it's unique doesn't mean it's true in, like, the theology. Sure. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. Okay, I, gotcha. I, Next. Yeah, go ahead. Is that you'd agree? No, I would just say the, I mean, yes, you have to look at internal consistency. I think you have to look at internal things. Like, for example, when it comes to the reliability of the Gospels, I mean, embarrassing details. You have to look at, I mean, logic has to come into play. So, so many things have to fall into line. You know, when I'm debating a Muslim, for example, and, and they'll just throw out there, well, the Quran is the perfect book and it gave us everything we have today in terms of science i, I mean I, I struggle with that one although there are beautiful details internally speaking in in the quran next up thanks for your question uh, we've got a lot of questions but if you I, want, okay but i didn't get to get my slavery in yet uh, on several occasions today he's mentioned reliability of the gospels but there's been no evidence that the gospels are reliable and since we don't have originals there's no right, way right. to demonstrate the gospels are reliable but go ahead if you want a chance to respond uh let's see we can probably do it if it's short and pithy Stuart, for both those topics i meant to say if the gospels are reliable because that is not okay today's debate topic gotcha and then the other one you mentioned you didn't get a chance to respond on slavery oh no the only thing i was going to add a, a lot of what matt said it, it takes a lot of unearthing you have to do but uh, one is i mean look arranged marriages that was the way it was done back then right and so for the israelites you had at least one month you had with the woman you brought in after beating a certain tribe civilization in a battle, you had to debate that you, <laughs> you had to date them or be with them. You couldn't have sex with them for at least one month. And oh, then you could marrying, marrying, and then you'd have to provide for them. So drastically yeah. different. Now, every other and and is that moral? We is do that have moral? the actual next one. If, if Matt, if I give you the last word on every single, on you so, did not give me the last word on every single, but keep going. I, well, just, I, I, I do it all fine. I'll do it at the end. I'm I'm trying to give Stuart the last word on the ones that challenge him. Otherwise, it's almost like it's teaming up on him because it's both the super chatter and then also the response from you. So Dave Dahlia for thanks for your question said, if God is love and keep, love keeps no records of wrong, then what is sin, Stuart? If God is love and love keeps no record of wrongs, well, yeah, that's why Jesus had to come and, and die for our sin. 
in order for our record not to be kept against us. Now, there will be a judgment day. To Matt's illustration about killing that guy in the woods, that's why I everything in me wants there to be a judgment day. Not necessarily that there will be a judgment day, but talk to slaves, and slaves got through what happened in our country just a matter of not even, what, what 200 years ago? They got through because they believed there would be a judgment day. And that's why you have someone like Thurman at Harvard in 1946 having this incredible address saying that judgment day and the cross ultimately was not just inspirational, but it was a supernatural thing that got slaves through what they had to go through. Got your next question. Thanks for your question from anti, let's see, I think we got that one. Bruce Wilk says, Stuart, do you have thoughts on James White and reformed people at a apologia? No, no. I better not because our, our cameraman's a, a good friend of his and we disagree on issues. Gotcha. Next question. Thanks for yours. Duke of Sahib says, Stuart, what are your thoughts on the Eastern Orthodox Church? Uh, God, God bless him. Gotcha. And next, thanks for your question. This one comes in from Antikathera says the cosmological argument requires a theory of time, but that would invalidate general relativity. Why do you choose to believe relativity is wrong? Say it again. It would involve time. That's right. They said the cosmological argument requires an A theory of time as opposed to, you know, like a B theory of time. They say, but what would invalidate general relative or but an A theory of time would invalidate general relativity. Why do you choose to believe relativity is wrong? I don't know. Matt probably knows. Matt, help me. I'm not holding that relativity is wrong. Yeah. Gotcha. Next, Joseph Clark, thanks for your question, says, does the prior discipline of logic, namely science as secondary, expand the epistemic scope of reason to consider the universal, invariant, and immaterial? Who's that for? I, I don't uh, understand that question either. Not certain. Uh, let's see. They said, uh, we'll give it one second shot. They said, doesn't the prior discipline of logic expand the epistemic scope of reason to consider the universal invariant and immaterial? They're talking to the wrong people because uh, I don't think the prior discipline of logic expands anything. You're talking about the foundation of something. It doesn't expand it. It serves as the foundation. Gotcha. Thanks for your question. John Brand says, Matt, fellow Texan, was Christian for 30 years. Found you, uh, I think they're saying, oh, okay, they're saying, Matt, I'm a fellow Christian, was, or, gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm sleep deprived, guys. Uh, they said, Matt, I'm a fellow Texan. I was Christian for 30 years. Found you a couple of years ago, and your talks have helped me in deconversion, and I want to say thanks. Thank you. I'm glad it was useful. Anti-Kathira, thanks for your question, said, Matt, Daniel 11 is too specific of a prophecy. Fake. I can't tell if they're being sarcastic or not. I, I don't. So first of all, I don't think that Daniel 11 or, or anything in the Bible is particularly specific, but there's no question there. It just says fake. So congratulations on a non-question. Gotcha. Thank you for your question. This one coming in from Duke of Sahib says, Stuart, if the apostles wouldn't have died for a lie, 
Then, why did Joseph Smith die for his claims about Mormonism? Sure. I mean, it's just Jim Jones. It's the Branch Davidians with David Koresh. It's the same old story. The, the, the deal with the, the apostles and so many eyewitnesses was they wouldn't have died for what they knew to be a lie. And that, dif that differs them as well from any uh, of ISIS, too, who are willing to give up their very lives. They're, they're not dying for what they know to be a lie. It's a pretty radical difference. This, this ties into what I said about Stuart earlier, that I don't think he's lying. Gotcha. Thanks. And want to quick remind you, as we have a few more questions left, both of our guests are linked in the description, folks. So if you'd like to hear more from them, you certainly can at those links that are at the very top of the description box. And this question comes in from Johnny V, who says, Jordan Peterson's famous lessons to young men about making their beds and washing their peepees <laughs> counters the claim that many guys wash their peepees. Okay, well, I didn't know that Jordan Peterson encouraged people to do that, uh, but... Now, the one thing about Peterson, if, if I could just say this, I, I mean, Matt, I don't, I, Matt, you may know this, but there are students like who are getting masters at Berkeley, brilliant guys who are being led to Christ through Jordan Peterson. And I don't just mean one or two, but this is like, this is like a strange movement going on. And, and Peterson's not even a Christian. So there's something, I mean, I, th I think he speaks obviously to the archetypes and metaphors and all of that but i think he also connects to the psychology and the emotions and saying there's something missing there that that may be part of the reason why he's able to do this or it's just the holy spirit doing this or <laughs> what you've just done is presented an argument against yourself uh, and and the the veracity of your positions because wow. hey, how did if, i do that if jordan peterson a non-christian yeah. can can speak in the sort of way that entices people to become Christians, then what we're talking about here is psychology because Jordan Peterson is not presenting any evidence for Christianity, weak or strong. And so what, what you're talking about here is he's saying something that encourages people to ask the sort of questions that you asked and that they're more likely to come up with the sort of answers that you've come up with. None of that has anything to do with whether or not there's strong evidence for a position. Okay, but that's still my position. Yeah, no, but today your position is that there is in fact strong evidence and you've presented none. No. Next up, <laughs> if it's really short and pithy, I can give you a chance, Stuart, but it's got to be super short. No, I think it's just, it's an awareness that something is missing. He, he leans so much on talking about meaning and purpose. And I think the Judeo-Christian values, archetypes, as well as just this metaphorical substrate, is is just so strong for people that they want to buy into it rather than what Matt was saying, which could be right, which we could just be, you know, this collocation of, of atoms that have no purpose or meaning. And uh, and so the subjective doesn't match the objective. Let's see. Uh, let's see. I want to go to the next one. I, I hate, I know this is hard. I, I, I really hate being hard on you guys in terms of like, not uh, letting it go further, but just to try to get through as many questions. We do have another one from Johnny V. He said, oh, we got that one. Ian Utubian, thank you, said, I believe in the Christian God, but I must say, Matt puts up a great argument and love, and I love his debates. Stuart, great job, brother. James, cute cat buddy. 
is a cute cat. And next, Alex Hoffman. But I couldn't agree more. This is honestly, it's been a really enjoyable debate. And, and so I, I have been, uh, I couldn't agree more with the people that have said they've enjoyed this interaction with our guests. So Alex Hovland, thanks for your super sticker. Johnny V says, we've got that one. Red Alert says, Stuart, if you believe in the supernatural, which is emotionally based, how can you rationally conclude that such events or beings exist? Wouldn't those go side by side? Gotcha. I think that they're maybe like trying to imply or suggesting that the emotional and the rational are kind of mutually exclusive or to some degree, maybe. That that wouldn't make any sense to me. Gotcha. Next, Henrik Van Nguyenhuizen, thank you, said, Stuart, does it not cause pause that some atheists tried to find good reasons for God instead become atheists? after investigation i think they're saying like yeah so like you know when an atheist says hey i'm gonna like really look into this looking for the evidence and then they nonetheless remain no that's why that's why i love what matt said earlier in terms of we don't want to be biased proselytizers from an atheist or a theist being that instead we want to be genuine truth seekers and wherever it leads you then and that's what you believe the truth is. Gotcha. And thank you for your question. This one, it comes in from, it's like, so uh, language and programming says, John 318, if you don't believe you are condemned. And if we read that really quick, just they, so which says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And, Thank you for that. I'm not sure if anybody wants to respond to that, but if you next, Michael, let's see. Okay. Trolls. Um, Bruce Wilkie. Thank you for your question. Said I'd like to see Matt debate someone who actually does exegesis. Mm. Nice little backhanded insult. <laughs> 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 um, it, it's, it's weird too, because as someone who has repeatedly pointed out today, I have no reason to care what the Bible has to say. Uh, a debate about exegesis is completely irrelevant to me. What you need is is a demonstration of why this passage, no matter what it means, should be considered relevant to my life. You don't just get to jump past that to let's have a talk about what this passage really means. But gotcha. And Harley Quinn says, if owning people as property was handed down by a holy and good God to a shame culture in the Old Testament but it's not permissible today. You're engaging in moral relativism, not objective morality. Correct. And I'd also point out, and I apologize, Stuart, but I wasn't going to let this go. Sitting around laughing and smiling while talking about how the Bible advocates for you to capture your wife from the people that you just slaughtered. Basically what you're describing is rape. Her consent her autonomy, her values, her desires are completely irrelevant. She is just a prisoner who becomes a wife. And to applaud the Bible for suggesting that, hey, you need to treat her like, treat her nice and not have sex with her uh, for a while is absolutely disgusting because you don't have sex with somebody until they consent, not because you freaking captured them. And to laugh and smile during that pronouncement of a grossly immoral thing that is in the Bible is pretty bad. No, I, I was laughing that I couldn't get my word in there. I wasn't laughing at the content. So and is it moral, then? Is it totally moral then to capture a wife? 
obviously in ancient Near Eastern culture, that's how it was done. That's moral relativism. And I would say uh, in agreement with you, arranged marriages, I have a lot of problems. I'm opposed to that too. I don't care more. My position doesn't have me have me advocate for any of this stuff. Yours does. Well, and maybe that's an improvement. Could okay. be. If we go to the New Testament, I think there was a tremendous improvement on understanding. I mean, how God dealt with that culture. I love how somebody in chat's calling me arrogant at the same time while I'm defending humanity. Like Next, Jesse Shodell, thank you for your question, says, why did Jesus need to die for God to forgive our sins? Or they, sorry about that. I think I butchered it again. They said, why did Jesus need to die in order for God to forgive our sins? Matt, Sunday school, fifth grade Sunday school here. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> Sin is brought into the world by man, and we require redemption. Also, because it's a fictional account that makes people feel like they owe something when they don't. Does any part of that make sense to you? Sorry, keep going, James. That was that was the whole question. I think they're saying, like, if you're... I think they're trying to argue that, for example, if humans forgive, we usually don't demand a, a punishment for the person who right. perpetrated but they're saying but why does god have to ha have jesus we do though sometimes like if you go to jail that's your penalty and you get out we're we we are capable uh, in some cases of forgiving people after they've served their time and done their thing i, I i'm not really sure I, I get that there's a lot of things to object to with regard to the notion of forgiveness and sin i don't know that any of that really jumps into today's debate about strong evidence for god and I suspect, I'm, I'm happy to have many more conversations with Stuart, but I, I suspect that our view on that is not that far apart. It's just, he thinks there's a God and I don't. But with regard to what's actually just, um, I wouldn't imagine that we're light years apart on what is just. <laughs> gotcha. And thank you for your question. This one comes in from, uh, let's see, but Stuart, if you want a chance to respond to it, uh, do, you, do you get what, the, what they mean though? If you, it sounds like... Uh, but it sounds like Matt's kind of playing um, the Christian's oh, advocate. Uh, Matt, I think Matt kind of answered it. But Jesse Schrodel, thanks for your question, said, no, we got that one. I, Ian Utubian, thanks for your question, said, Stuart, why does God bless some atheists or bad people with a great earthly life, but some hardcore Christians have it really tough on earth? Hmm. There's many layers to that. One is cosmic, sociological, psychological brokenness. Two, it's common grace seen through an Old Testament character like Cyrus. God works through atheists. Three, how do you, I, I know, so, so this is one of the, the benefits of being a, a pastor as well as an unlicensed psychotherapist. And that is, I do get to experience, I mean, a lot of the pain, and we didn't get to talk about this, but Matt went here a little bit. I mean, there's a reason why books like Anti-Fragile or The Coddling of the American Mind and so many more of these are, are coming out. And I think a lot of that has to do with our secular age. There's, there's not a response to suffering yet. And this is shown, if you go sociologically, throughout cultures, that there's a radical, radical difference. And so for me, I, I think that anti-fragile great book and, and anti-fragility in general um or falling upward is uh 
is um, Ray Dalio's book. And basically, it's what can you learn in your suffering? Is suffering all that bad? No, Christians are not called to be masochists, but there's certainly we can grow in character, physically, emotionally, and definitely in our relationship with God in suffering. So th- there's many different facets to that question. It's a good one. Super interesting. That is, I do want to uh, respect the time of our debaters. I also want to apologize. So sorry, Matt. I was uncharitable earlier when I said that uh, that you that I that you were responding to every single question. That was far from the truth. And so I'm so sorry for being so. Snide. No, it's okay. It's it's one of those. Plus, I, I I prepared after you said so because I knew that I was going to have to jump back and forth on some of these questions. So next time I have this hat for when I'm in secular mode. And I have this hat for when I'm putting on my old uh, Christian ideas and, and, you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. (laughs) But that ain't real. See, it's. (laughs) We're having a picture off the other one. I come with props. I'll be here all week. Please skip your waitresses. Appreciate that. Thanks for your flexibility and forgiveness. And I want to say, folks, both of our guests are linked in the description. So. Just a final reminder for that. Want to say thanks so much, everybody, for hanging out with us. Thanks for being patient with that delayed start. I really do appreciate you guys, especially, uh, you know, I have to tell you, it's I'm the the most like frustrated whenever we start late. I'm the one that's like honestly no joke. I it drives me nuts, and uh, it's oftentimes because I myself am am uh, not super timely so we do appreciate your flexibility and your support folks it's always a fun time here we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you're from as well christian atheist or whatever strange creature in between you happen to be so thanks so much folks and with that want to say keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable take care everybody without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.